Hi, Kirby. Hi, Sarah. Welcome, Welcome to, to Los Angeles. Angeles. Welcome, Glamgelinos. We hope you stay a while. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Y'all, we've been talking so much about minis lately. There's like this mini bonanza. People are going nuts over having minis and there are children that love the minis and it's just like there's holidays and you can sample things and we were like, okay, we need to get a cosmetic packaging expert on this podcast because sure, yes, we we love the minis, but they are a nightmare when it comes to recycling. And we happened to post on our Instagram a video from a person that you guys may know as Allison Turquoise on Instagram, TikTok, but she works in cosmetic packaging. So today we have Allison Kent Gunn. She has over seven years of experience behind the scenes, and she has collaborated with beauty brands ranging from indie to international to bring their product packaging from ideation all the way to mass production, which I think is such a fascinating job. She started in the beauty industry working for a skincare laboratory that emphasized science-based skincare education. We love to hear it, which fueled her passion for making science and sustainability education accessible for beauty consumers and industry insiders alike. She currently works as sales director at Berlin Jancy, but her passion for beauty packaging extends beyond her nine to five. In addition to her full-time sales director job, she also teaches a college-level cosmetic packaging class at FITM. Okay, Sarah, we need to take that. Offers independent consulting to brands that need professional guidance, navigating the world of packaging, and leverages her Instagram presence to help educate consumers and brands alike on the nuances of sustainable packaging. We love nuance. Allison, welcome to Gloss Angeles. Thank you. So happy to be here. When do you sleep? I actually need a lot of sleep. So basically, like my special interest of cosmetic packaging is just like the only hobby I have. Uh, (laughs) I'm kind of obsessive. So yeah, when people ask me like, oh, like, what do you like to do? And I'm just like, just just beauty packaging. That's it. Like, I'm very one-dimensional in that sense. <laughs> I love this for you. And truly, Allison, you are the expert. I can't even remember how we even started following each other, but we've been following each other for a while now. And you're the only person really on my feed that I trust when it comes to learning more about packaging in general. I know Sarah would agree with that because you have such a unique point of view. And as your bio states, you have nuance. You know, we posted your minis video about why it is truly a nightmare when it comes to recycling because they're not up to you know certain standards. But at the same time, you also understand that people want to be able to try maybe a brand that they're not familiar with, or it's a great way to get some experience with a brand that maybe is out of your price range. And now that we're seeing, especially like a younger set of people be fascinated more with like going to Sephora and Ulta and stuff like that, that's a way to get them included in the conversation without marketing to them like these overzealous large pieces of product. So Mm -hmm. we are so excited to talk to you today. But first, we need to know what's on your face. 
Well, my skin is very, very prone to dermatitis. So I have to keep things very simple. I can't use a lot of the very (laughs) hot, sexy actives, unfortunately. So no vitamin C, no glycolic, no niacinamide, uh, very few chemical UV filters. So unfortunately, my skincare routine can seem a little bit boring, even for me. But a couple products I've absolutely been loving, the Dew Skin Moisturizer. Oh my God. I was like, oh, it's all hype. Like I'm going to be disappointed per usual. Oh my God. They absolutely killed it on that moisturizer. Stunning. Love that. So I'm wearing that today. Let's see another product I've been loving. Ooh, this is like a true confession. I'm very religious about sunscreen application and reapplication. Basically everywhere except my lips. I have completely ignored sunscreen protection on my lips for years. Um, but I'm trying to get better on it. And I found a product that I love from Bavis. So they have like an SPF 30 lip oil. It's so pretty. I feel like it's not sticky and it doesn't taste like sunscreen. That's one of my biggest complaints about lip SPFs is that they taste like sunscreen. Like I can taste the UV filters. Ugh, horrible. Yeah. But I've really been enjoying that one. So I'm actually wearing that today, even though we're indoors. I don't need the SPF, but it's pretty. Yeah. We've talked about Pavis on the podcast before, this new sunscreen brand. And I just wrote on my newsletter, like, would you buy a $148 bottle of sunscreen? Mm-hmm. Because it's a really unique brand and that they want to kind of be your one-stop shop, a moisturizer, a treatment, and a sunscreen all in one. And mm-hmm. I think that they ha- are doing something really interesting. Instead of promoting sun protection, they're promoting themselves as an anti-aging product, which I think if you're going to be marketing a sunscreen that's over $100, you definitely should be (laughs) promoting the fact that they are doing more than just protecting your skin from UV filters. So Sarah, we should get Sophie, the founder on the pod for sure. Definitely. I'm looking at the lip oil. It's not cheap. It's $58. But I'm like very interested in trying these shades. They're so pretty. It's because it's tinted. Yes. Yeah. They're really beautiful shades. And yeah, Sophie's amazing. She's a little intimidating because she's so brilliant. I'm I'm always just like, don't say something stupid. Don't say something stupid in front of her. But she's so sweet and down to earth. So yeah, I'm so excited by what she's doing with Boobies. I went to their labs in August in Boston. Yeah, at MIT. She developed at 16 an anti-aging molecule. Like, what were you doing in six? I mean, I was literally like trying to get to an NSYNC concert at 16 and like find a boyfriend. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. Buying hard candy at Nordstrom. Yeah, exactly. We were fueling our beauty, <laughs> our beauty obsession. She's like, I'm discovering molecules. So I know. I know. Speaking of brilliant careers, We need to talk about your career trajectory and how you made it into cosmetic packaging. Also, like your love of beauty. Where did that all start? And like, how did you find yourself as the expert in cosmetic packaging? Sure. I think like a lot of people who find themselves in the beauty industry as a career, I got into it originally for selfish reasons. I had horrific acne throughout my preteens and teenage years. I remember getting my first pimple at like 11 in elementary school and all the kids just gathering around me like, oh no, are you okay? Like, is this contagious? Like what's going on? So uh, that was a very formative experience. So at 18, fresh out of high school, I decided I was going to get my aesthetics license and then I was going to have the power to cure my acne. Um, Little did I know that it was so much more complex than I could have 
ever imagined. But that really did put me on a career path, whether I knew it or not. So throughout college, I worked at Ulta and Bloomingdale's in sales. And that was actually really important in my career, even though that was kind of more my humble origin story, if you will. Being able to actually experience the consumer purchasing behavior process in real time was very, very fascinating. And that really helps to inform even what I do behind the scenes, because a lot of times there's a huge disconnect between the logical purchase decision that a consumer should make and the one that's driven by emotions, you know, or this idea of their future self, you know, social status. There's all these things that are tied to a purchasing decision that are really hard to anticipate on a large scale when you're working behind the scenes and trying to anticipate how a product's going to be received. So after working my way through college at Bloomingdale's and Ulta, I then took a really big step in my career and I went to work for a skincare laboratory. I was working in B2B sales and this was a really important kind of stepping stone for me in a sense that this lab put a really big emphasis on science-based skincare education. And that really inspired me. I hadn't had an employer put so much emphasis on being transparent and having conversations with clients that might challenge their preconceived notions of what clean beauty is or you know medical grade products FDA approved versus regulated products so that was really really important and that actually inspired me to start my social media i started on instagram and i really just wanted to take that education to a larger scale and also not just target beauty professionals, but also consumers as well, because I feel like a lot of the misinformation was trickling down to consumers. And then consumers were demanding certain free from lists or certain blacklists from brands. And it was just this vicious cycle. So yeah, started my, my social media while I was there. And then after a few years at the skincare laboratory, I decided to make a big leap into cosmetic packaging. And whew, that was a learning curve. I had no idea how technical cosmetic packaging was. But because I did experience a bit of a learning curve, I really threw myself into trying to understand cosmetic packaging as much as I could from multiple angles, the science, the art, sustainability. But I realized that there were very limited resources available for cosmetic packaging. And a lot of the resources did tend to contradict each other, especially in regards to sustainability. So I decided to kind of shift my focus on social media to focus almost entirely on cosmetic packaging because I feel like it's such a white space and there's so much nuance involved. And especially in regards to sustainability, I feel like consumers and brands and suppliers even all play a really big role in kind of the misinformation sustainability myths that we continue to see perpetrated throughout the industry. I'm fascinated by this because this is just a part of the industry that I am and, and I know Sarah too is maybe not super familiar with. We feel like we have a lot of experience with ingredients and how things are made and, and that process. But when it comes to packaging, we really are looking to you as our expert over here. I'm curious, what is something that consumers get wrong about packaging? You mentioned this vicious cycle of maybe a brand or someone says something, and then all of a sudden it's perpetuated. Then we have this mob of people saying, no, you cannot use sulfates, you cannot use parabens, you cannot use whatever. And then instead of 
real innovation happening with these brands, they are then succumbing to these wants of a consumer that is maybe not as informed as they should be, but they're still dictating what is being made. Is there anything going on like that when it comes to packaging that you're seeing right now? Oh, yeah, definitely. So I would say the biggest misconception that I see brands and consumers falling prey to is this over-reliance on recyclability. And, you know, I really don't even blame consumers. And I don't blame a lot of brands either, because unfortunately, I feel like a lot of this has actually originated on the supplier side. So packaging suppliers, at the end of the day, they're trying to sell products too. There was a company that I worked for in the past that released a monomaterial lipstick bullet. So it was 100% PP. So in theory, it could be recycled. So it was something that was really exciting. We were told to, you know, push to our, you know, color cosmetic consumers, but nowhere in the marketing collateral did it mention that because U.S. recycling facilities have such strict requirements in regard to size for recyclability, realistically, pretty much all of these lipstick bullets are going straight to the landfill. You know, so there was a really big disconnect there from the messaging that, yes, this is recyclable versus this is actually going to successfully be recycled in the United States. So, you know, that's something that I'm trying really hard, both behind the scenes and in front of the camera to highlight, because I do feel like a lot of consumers are demanding recyclable packaging from brands. And unfortunately, I think recyclability is one of the least effective sustainability strategies, but yet it's the one that so many consumers and brands alike are demanding. Yeah, it's so crazy. So Kirby knows this, but last year I did this big package for Refinery about like for Earth Month or whatever, and we obviously focused on beauty. And I was so overwhelmed and confused because I was trying to figure out like, yeah, what is the best way? Like, it's not glass, even though all these brands are, you know, trying to say that they're, they only use glass. And so that's super sustainable, but actually that it's not great at all. But then alternatively, bioplastics, not great. Refillable packaging, not great. Aluminum, maybe. But then you have to, like you said, there's like so much you have to do. You have to throw the cap away and you have to like make sure it's clean, like all these things. So like, what can we do as a consumer to like really (laughs) try to be sustainable? Like when we are looking at brands and looking at products. Yeah, no, that's a great question. From a packaging perspective, every material whether it's considered largely sustainable or not, is going to have pros and cons from a sustainability perspective. That's just the way there is. There's no universal sustainable packaging material, unfortunately. You know, so everything is going to be a little bit of give and a little take. And a lot of it is going to be a case-by-case basis, not only from the type of product. So, you know, for example powder-based products are a really good candidate for refill pouches, even monomaterial refill pouches, which in theory can be recycled afterwards. But a liquid product, you know, that has a high amount of L-ascorbic acid, you know, might not because there's an issue with permeability for the refill pouches. So really taking a custom tailored approach to sustainability and really assessing it product by product is something that I highly encourage, although that's very, very time consuming. It can be very overwhelming for brands. From a consumer standpoint, honestly, the most sustainable thing to do is just try to 
purchase less. And once you do purchase, make sure you're finishing it. You know, you actually use it. I know we all try a product and we're like, this did not work for my skin. There's no way this is touching my face again. But you know, if you can find a way to repurpose it, you know, either as body care or, you know, gift it to a friend, you know, just really ensuring that, you know, anything we are taking off the market, we're hopefully fully using and then disposing of to the best of our ability. So I'm really happy to see that Ulta and Sephora do have in-store recycling now. They still have limitations on what they can accept, like mascara wands, but they are able to accept packaging that most recycling facilities would divert to the landfill. That's really encouraging. You know, I'm really glad that that's a step that both of them have taken this year. Totally. Kirby and I, we were talking about that with the minis, right? And I know, Allison, you mentioned it in your video, we were like, sure, yes, obviously, like these mini pa- these mini packages are not great, but at least you're finishing it versus, you know, buying a shit ton of full size products and it's just sitting there and then you're not finishing it at all. No, exactly, exactly. And so many people in the comments of both of our videos were talking about how, you know, I love mini mascaras. I don't wear mascara every day since the pandemic. So it just doesn't make sense for me to purchase a full-size mascara. So I think there's so many cases where minis do make sense and minis can even be the more sustainable option, funny enough. But I do think that minis do trigger consumer impulsivity a lot Mm. easier than full-size products just because of the price point and God, Sephora is so good with that beauty on the go setup they have at the cash register. It's so bad. I have to like look at my phone tunnel vision. So I'm not tempted to just like try the latest, greatest cult classic. It's it's insane. And I work in the industry. Like I'm fully aware of what they're doing to me, but I still fall prey to it sometimes. I, without a doubt, if I go into a Sephora, will walk out with something from beauty on the go. Even if I don't buy anything else, I'll just be like, I'm going to get in line and see what's uh, what's available because maybe I need a restock for travel. <laughs> maybe I need like something for my purse or whatever. Yeah. Because that's the thing, too. It's like the modern beauty consumer has makeup or whatever on their person at all times at this point. It's not simply just trying to sample something. It's like, OK, we need it because we are busy traveling from our homes for work or or going on vacation or whatever. Or we just want to be able to have something easily to touch up in our purses and our clutches, whatever. So I'm glad that there is nuance to this because I think the thing that really sticks out to me, Allison, as you said, recycling isn't the most sustainable option sometimes. And that is kind of mind-blowing to think about because a lot of people it's recycling and sustainability are the same thing. If it's not recyclable, it's not sustainable. And it sounds like sustainability needs a better publicist to help educate the modern beauty consumer that just because something is recyclable doesn't mean it's actually sustainable. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's so true. You know, one of the sustainability strategies that I think is the most effective, but it's one that very few brands are familiar with and even fewer consumers have ever heard of is lightweighting. So lightweighting is basically using the smallest amount of material per skew possible. And really, I mean, reduction in material use and especially plastic being introduced into the market is really like the goal we're aiming for right now. So I see a lot of brands investing in refills, for example, which can be a very effective strategy if your consumer purchasing habits align with it. But I think lightweighting is something that is such an easy, I don't want to say easy, but it's one that's a lot easier to implement with current consumer purchasing behavior than refillable or 
the refill pouches. You know, some consumers are just going to have like a natural hesitation to implement that. It's it's inconvenient. You know, they don't like the uncertainty of, you know, how do I disassemble this? And, you know, how do I make sure I'm getting all of the product out of the refill pouch into the keepsake component? You know, consumers value their time and their convenience. So some just naturally aren't going to gravitate towards that. So I think lightweighting is a really, really great option for brands of all budgets, really, and all different product categories as well. So big fan of lightweighting, in case you can't tell. I had never even really heard of lightweighting. So that's, that's like opened my eyes for sure. Same. I also just want to comment on the inconvenient part about refillables. There are so many brands that do like even like the lipstick components. And I'm like, I can't figure it out. They make it so difficult. And then I just end up buying a whole new one and it defeats the entire purpose. No, I completely agree with you. And a lot of them really, they don't have an intuitive design, not for consumers anyway. So yeah, there's a huge inconvenience factor. I know personally, I've bought some refills. I think I bought like a refill blush and I was trying to put it into the keepsake component. And I just did like a huge nail dig into like this brand new, beautiful blush. And I was like, like just like you know it's, it's as someone who wants their beauty products to look as instagrammable and beautiful as possible like it just upset me i'm like i'm just trying to be a good person here <laughs> i can't have anything it's so dramatic it's ridiculous but you know unfortunately a lot of consumers you know end up having a really frustrating experience with refills and they just shy away from them in the future because of you know past negative experience so yeah i definitely feel you on that sarah yeah <laughs> okay Do you have anything else that you think is important to note about refills? I see these refillable brands and I'm thinking to myself, there is no way people are actually doing this. Like there is just literally no way. I don't know. I guess I go back and forth. Like the whole purpose of the refill is you're keeping the main component and then you're refilling it because you like it. And yes, we have those products that like are... Mine is the fresh soy face cleanser. If they made it in a pouch that was like, yeah, you know, didn't have a ton of whatever, I would pour it in the bottle I already have and like call it a day, right? Or if you were able to go to like Ulta with your bottle. Like a co-op. Fill it up with a pump. Yeah, like a co-op. Then sure, you would do that. Sarah and I have discussed this. That's why you, we are very impassioned about it. But like... <laughs> It's one of those things where there's too many products on the market and there's too many things that everybody is being told you need to try this. This TikTok is like the number one driver of overconsumption because every week there is a new product that's life changing and that you have to buy. So I'm like, are people actively refilling? I would love to know with our listeners, are y'all actually refilling stuff? Are you like, eh? After I'm done with this, I'm going to go back to something else. I'd love to think that everybody is really staying to their tried and true regimens. But I also think that there is a large faction of people that are going, yeah, but maybe I want to try this other moisturizer now or maybe this different serum this time to see if it works better. You know, like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, are, is refillable like a, a nice idea, but like not necessarily executed properly? Yeah. So I have a real lovely relationship with refills. So on one hand, they can effectively reduce the amount of plastic being introduced into the market with each repurchase. But this is very, very heavily dependent on consumer purchasing behavior. So oftentimes, a consumer will need to purchase a refill four to five times before there starts to be any sort of sustainability benefits. So Mm. if they're not hitting that four to five repurchase rate, the refill is actually 
potentially less sustainable than just single-use packaging. Because if you think about it, you have this keepsake component and then you have a refill inside of it. So you have two separate packages, basically. So unfortunately, there's a big disconnect between the intent behind refills and then the actual successful implementation once it hits consumers. And, you know, understandably, like you guys just touched on, there is a huge decrease in brand and product loyalty these days, a large part due to social media. And as such, you know, clients just aren't as inclined to repurchase even holy grail products like they were even 10 years ago. So I think it can make sense for some products. And I think refill pouches, in my opinion, make more sense than like refill pods or cartridges because the refill pouch already, there's a reduction in plastic. So like with Dermalogica, for example, the microfoliant, that's a best-selling product for them. It's an enzyme-based powder. It's the perfect candidate for a refill pouch. So they launched a refill pouch that used 90% less plastic than their standard single-use rigid component. So for refill pouches, I feel like you see the sustainability benefits a lot sooner, but with actual refill cartridges or pods, there's just so much more material being used and Consumers have to repurchase so much more in order to actually see sustainability benefits. Is it better just to use those pouches in general? Like, is, is like purchasing a pouch better than purchasing the keepsake component? And then, I mean, I would think it, the pouch would be just better because I'm thinking of Sunday Riley. They have this, this like charcoal body wash scrub that helps with keratosis polaris. And I love it. And it, it's a, it's a pouch and you're not able to buy it in an actual like rigid component. It's just the pouch. Is that like a better way to go? Yeah. You know, I think that can be a better way to go. I think a lot of brands still want to incentivize people to make the investment with the keepsake component and then just buy the refill pouches in the future. But, you know, I do see some brands just launching refill pouches that have a spout. So you actually have a cap. So it's so much easier for consumer use. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> More of those. I just, ugh. if you don't have the spout with the cap, like, what are we doing? Come on now. Yeah. It's like, what are we going to do? Paper clip this like together yeah. until I use it again tomorrow? Like, come on. Yeah. Be for real. <laughs> Be for real. Potato bag, chip it. Yeah. Yes. Let's be be a little positive right now. What brands do you think? I feel like we've just been like, ah. but no, <laughs> surely there are some brands out there that are doing cool things when it comes to packaging, even if maybe it's not the most sustainable way. But, you know, again, the intent behind it is so that it can be more, quote unquote, green. What are some brands that you are like, wow, this is really cool. I love what you're doing. Yeah. You know, a lot of times when I'm asked like what brands are doing it right, it's hard to answer because I feel like a lot of times it varies product to product. Very few brands are just like nailing it on every product. And, you know, in a way that makes sense because, you know, product packaging is going to vary by product, by size. So there's a lot more variance. But in general, one brand that I think did a great job kind of revamping their packaging to be more sustainable is Stradia. So Stradia did a big revamp of their packaging. And now all of their bottles implement 30 to 70% PCR content, which is great. I'm a big fan of implementing PCR content when we can. So I think that was a great genuine sustainability effort on their part. They're also interesting too, actually, because their supply chain is actually inherently 
more sustainable than a lot of brands in the sense that they do all of their own manufacturing and fulfillment in their LA headquarters. So there's actually some sustainability benefits to that as well, especially when we look at like transportation. So transportation is a part of the supply chain where there's a lot of greenhouse gas emissions that are generated, but because they have the manufacturing and the fulfillment on site together, as opposed to having a contract manufacturer actually fill the product and then ship it to a distribution warehouse, they're able to cut out that section of basically to and from transportation. So they're able to go ahead and just completely omit the emissions that would have been generated just from contract manufacturer to distribution warehouse. So I think they're a really interesting case. I love that you brought that up because Again, glams. Are you even thinking about the, you know, emissions that brands are putting out there when it comes to, you know, getting these products delivered and making sure they get to you? No, nobody really is thinking of those details when it comes to sustainability. This conversation really has been focused around the recyclability of these products, which is kind of crazy that the big recycle is really, you know, going hard on getting people to like talk about recyclability because it's like, that's the only thing people are discussing right now. Yeah, no, it's so true. It's so true. And it's, you know, in a lot of ways, I guess it makes sense too, because I mean, consumers see and feel the packaging on a daily basis. So it makes sense that that's the most digestible aspect of sustainability for them. But from like a supply chain perspective, there is some really interesting things happening when it comes to like streamlining supply chains. Um, so Stradia I mentioned is a great example of that. They actually worked with Bluebird Climate recently to do like a full life cycle analysis of all of their products and their supply chain. And it was really, really fascinating because it gives the brand, but also consumers, the ability to kind of zoom out from just solely looking at the packaging and look at the entire kind of supply chain and see, you know, what areas are contributing the most to greenhouse gas emissions or waste. And from Stradi's perspective, them having the in-house manufacturing and fulfillment center has really, really helped to reduce the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that they're generating as business. Wow. Do you feel like on that note, do you think that beauty brands that are B corporations are inherently then like more sustainable and then and even in their packaging and that we should support those brands? I think it's a little tricky when we get to certifications, more from the perspective of a lot of brands are making sustainability efforts, but they aren't paying for certifications necessarily. I think this applies more to like small indie brands that are like really trying to do their part. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to answer that in a way that's <laughs> that's very succinct and very like value driven. I was just thinking about it because Kirby was talking about the emissions part. And then I was thinking about all the brands that are really trying to do a lot and make those statements and pay for the certification. And they're like, okay, we are a B corporation. We're really, you know, lessening our carbon footprint. We are doing all these more sustainable packaging, but like, really, are they, is it greenwashing or is it like real? I don't know. It's a tough one to answer. I mean, in a sense, it's great that brands are measuring their waste and greenhouse gas emissions. That's fantastic. We need to be able to track these things in order to improve them in the future. But I also think that having the B Corp stamp is a good indicator of a brand's values. But I think it can also lead consumers to think, oh, I'm purchasing this. I'm making a sustainable purchasing decision. And I think it gets a little tricky because really the most sustainable purchasing decision is to purchase nothing. And I say that as someone who works in the beauty industry and needs people to keep 
purchasing packaging if I'm going to have a job. But, you know, I think there's a little bit of a, a disconnect there between like refillable packaging, B Corp, any brand that's making true sustainability efforts. I think consumers sometimes will purchase the product and be like, okay, I just made a sustainable choice. Like, you know, I'm doing my part, but really just purchasing less is the best and most sustainable thing that we can do as consumers, as as tricky as that is to say, as someone who really benefits and whose career depends on people buying packaging. (laughs) Sorry, that was such a like existential, difficult question. I was just... Thank you for trying to answer that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a good one. Like, it's a really good question. But yeah, it's a little... I'm going to just sip some coffee. That was a really good one. <laughs> we actually have like a little term that we use for our listeners called dodo ho. And it's basically like... a. I know. <laughs> it's brilliant, actually. Kirby came up with it. It's brilliant. <laughs> Allison's like, dodo ho. Well, we, we didn't want it to be doo ho because that just sounds a little <laughs> profane. So dodo ho. Before you purchase anything, do you know the person that's trying to essentially sell you this product? Like, do you trust them? Are you just getting this served through ads on your Instagram feed that are being paid for by the brand or like some random influencer on TikTok that you've never seen before in your life and like don't know anything about their skin or how old they are, or like their background and any of this stuff. A. The second one is, do you need it in your routine? Do you already have something that's going to fulfill this? Don't buy it if you don't need it. And then ho is for how. And it's like, do you know how to use this product properly? Because people are buying things, being told that they need it and it's going to change their life and they get it and they're like, I don't know what I'm doing with this product. And then they don't use it and then it's wasteful. Glams, don't forget. Dodo ho. Dodo ho. Dodo ho. I'm going to remember that forever. We'll send you the breakdown so you can also (laughs) preach the Dodo Ho gospel, Allison, okay? Thank you. Thank you. That way I'm not just like Dodo Ho and people are like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it should be (laughs) self-explanatory. You mentioned Stradia as like an example of a brand that's doing, you know, for all intents and purposes, things right. I'm curious, just in general, who do you think is making really cool packaging that kind of like checks a few boxes for you? I love your videos when you kind of do deep dives on specific viral packaging or packaging that's interesting to you. But what brands are doing cool things with packaging that you think are like either aesthetic or like actually changing the industry in a way? I mean, we've talked so much about sustainability, obviously. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit and talk about aesthetics. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Just to round it out, you know. (laughs) So, you know, one brand that I think is really interesting and I actually use as a case study of subliminal branding in my cosmetic packaging college course that I teach is Amaya. So their industrial line is fascinating. Like as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, this is fascinating. I have to do a deep dive on this collection. And it pulls very heavily from BDSM culture. Now, I am not a member of this community, but even I was able to pick up on the subliminal marketing and see the correlation and kind of the the narrative that they were telling with this collection. Like there's, I think it's a, a lip gloss, if I'm not mistaken, or it might be a mascara, I can't recall. But the cap of it has basically like, a ring, like a piercing ring, kind of like a nipple ring. And it's just, it's such an interesting example of 
extravagant packaging. And I feel like so many brands are going so minimal right now, which has its own benefits, especially from a sustainability perspective. But the art historian in me, I've majored in art history and I ended up in packaging. I don't know what happened. But the art historian (laughs) in me absolutely loves this industrial collection from Isamaya because the subliminal branding is just so on point. And, you know, I think subliminal branding is something that gets overlooked by a lot of brands. There's so many visual and tactile cues that consumers pick up on in packaging that they don't even realize they're picking up on. You know, so even if you have a completely blank package, there's no brand name, there's no, you know, product name, no text, there's still cues used, shapes, colors, textures, finishes, all of these things really help to create a narrative around the brand and around the specific product. And I think that's something that a lot of brands kind of underestimate the importance of because like really, I'm sure we've all had this experience walking down you know, a Sephora aisle and we see a package that catches our eyes. Product formula doesn't catch our eyes. We don't know anything about the product. It's the packaging that catches our eyes. And then once we're intrigued enough to stop and like take a moment to just look at it, if we're still intrigued enough, we pick it up. Again, like second touch point, you know, visual and tactile, it's all packaging at this point. I think a lot of brands can a little bit underestimate the importance of packaging that gets people to stop and pick it up because if they're not willing to stop and pick up the packaging, they're never going to interact with the formula. You're 100% right. Is Amaya, so her lips collection with the penis component, we talked about it when it launched. And I mean, I fully loved it. I thought it was so smart because there are a lot of brands that are trying to make these keepsake components that you're going to hang on to and want to have forever, but they formula-wise are completely missing the mark. Like the actual product itself, it's not great. It was more a focus on the packaging. I think Isamaya has that one-two punch of, oh my God, is that a penis? And then the actual product is really, really nice and cool. Like the black sheer balm, instead of it being like a traditional clear gloss, It's that black, so it gives you a little bit of like a cooler tint to your lips. And then there's the pink version. I don't know if those are refillable. Do you know if they're refillable? Okay, so I actually, this is, I did a video on this exact component like two days ago. So perfect timing. Um, But no, so actually, interestingly enough, they do offer refills. But one thing that I think is Amaya does particularly well is that the refills are fully functional on their own. So consumers aren't forced to purchase the phallic keepsake component if they don't want it. So I think that's really interesting. I feel like a lot of consumers, if they want to try a product that's refillable, they're forced to purchase the keepsake product in order to actually use the product. But Isamaya did an interesting thing by offering the actual lipsticks and refills that you can just use and take on the go as is. Or if you like that phallic shape and you're like, I am all about that. I need this keepsake component in my packaging collection. You can purchase it and then use it accordingly. But I think that's really interesting is that she's not forcing anyone to purchase the keepsake component because it does use a lot of material, like realistically. So I think it's really interesting that she, she offered the refill system in that way. I agree. With the pouches, add the spout. Let us be able to use the refillable stuff on its own. There you go. What is, in your opinion, the most wasteful product at an Ulta or Sephora, or if you have one of each at Ulta and and then at Sephora, or just in general, like... And we're not, we're not putting you on the spot because you have videos, y'all. So y'all can go to Allison's page 
and see them. So we, we're not just calling her out here. She she does have opinions on these things. No, I talk about this all the time. And the reason I laugh is because I always reference the same product from the same brand, but the Bioma Cleansing Balm. Oh. <laughs> so Bioma has very iconic square packaging. They're known for that. They've won awards for that. And from an aesthetic perspective, very cute, very Gen Z. But from a sustainability perspective, these square overshells are an absolute nightmare. So I'll take the cleansing balm in particular because I think this one is the biggest offender of their products. So the cleansing balm, if you actually purchase it and open it, there's a huge square overshell. And then the actual product is filled in this small circle within it. But this outer perimeter that makes up that square shape of their packaging is just like a solid brick of plastic. So they're basically utilizing like the complete opposite of lightweighting and they're doing overpackaging. And I think a lot of what they're doing is one, they want to adhere to their branding with that very iconic square packaging and they have to do overshells for that for a lot of their packaging. But two, I think they also are trying to increase size impression. And this is something a lot of brands do, especially brands that are really trying to drive the value of their product when compared to competitors. So if we look at the Bioma Cleansing Balm, it's like a huge brick. And I think I want to say it's like a 50 mil, if I'm not mistaken. But when we compare it to other industry standard 50 mil jars, the Bioma Cleansing Balm packaging is two to three times larger for the same exact amount of product. And it's just it's like offensive at this point. Like I'm offended as a consumer, you know. So I think they would be the biggest offender in my mind. And I've talked about them multiple times. I'm trying not to talk about them as much because I feel like I'm almost like bullying them at this point. And it's really not my intention. But like, I really would just love to have a conversation with someone at Bioma about how we could reduce the amount of material used per SKU. But I would say that's a huge one. And I think size impression actually kind of is a topic that extends beyond Bioma. It's something that a lot of brands do. When... We are looking at products and how they're set up on retailer shelves. Very few consumers, when comparing two products, are going to take the time to read the net volume or Mm. net weight of a product. Instead, they say, okay, this one is a cleansing balm. This one's a cleansing balm. Wow, this one's so much bigger. And they're the same price. This one's the better value. But they don't stop to read the actual amount of ounces that they're getting. It's something that I think brands do not only to take up more retail space, but I think it's something brands do to really try to outvalue the competition based purely from like a visual assessment perspective. And ultimately, I I do think it can be very deceitful whether brands intend to or not. At the end of the day, would I encourage consumers to actually read how much product they're getting? Of course I do. But, you know, I think it's something that we are very visual creatures, um, especially when it comes to like making purchases. So again, I think a lot of us really just will assess the value of a product more instinctively and not go through like a logical checklist of like, okay, well, <laughs> if this is this much, you know, if this product costs this much per ounce and this one costs this much per ounce, this one's actually the like better value of the two. Most consumers aren't going to go through that like logical mental checklist before making a purchase. Oh my God. Right. I do. I, Cause I do that with food all the time. <laughs> that's like, I'm, that's like a mother now. I'm like, damn, 
that's expensive for like however much like in comparison. But I will say, like Kirby and I talk about this all the time. There is nothing more infuriating than opening like a new product and being like, oh my God, that's the amount of product in this giant jar or whatever. It's so upsetting. It is. No, it really is. Like you feel like you've been bamboozled. Like it's like, what? <laughs> this isn't what I paid for. I hate being bamboozled. <laughs> bamboozled by the beauty bamboozled. industry by bioma <laughs> oh my god bamboozled by bioma okay so allison we're gonna wrap things up what's the biggest issue brands face your opinion in this area of the industry like where do we go from here i i i don't want to blame brands for everything i do think that they are sometimes just strategically trying to check certain boxes or like adhere to their own brand vision or whatever it is. They want to stand out in a very oversaturated marketplace. I understand that. But where do we go from here? Like, what are the brands facing right now? I mean, I think the first step is to take a step back and really trying to zoom out from just looking at sustainability as a packaging issue and really try to look at it as more of like a big picture issue for brands. So I think life cycle analysis can be an incredibly helpful tool for creating more sustainable supply chains. Again, I know that's a lot harder to communicate to consumers. It takes a lot more nuance. It takes a lot more education and brands have a very limited amount of consumer attention and they have to use it so, so wisely. So I recognize that, but, you know, I think that's really what I would encourage brands to do is to really take a step back and based on their current supply chain, see where they can try to reduce the amount of, you know, carbon emissions they're generating or, you know, waste or material they're using. Because even really small reductions over time can have huge, huge impacts, especially for some of these brands that do millions and millions of units of volume every year. Like for example, La Roche-Posay, I think did a really great job of this. So they launched a tube that had cardboard actually. So it was partially plastic, partially cardboard, not recyclable, but no one cares because recyclable is just not what we're aiming for. But what was interesting was this tube helped to reduce the amount of plastic use, I think by 45% per skew, which when you mm. consider how many volumes of like cleanser and lotion La Roche-Posay sells on an annual basis, that 45% per skew is going to add up to a huge amount of plastic saved. Because they're an international brand. So many people use their products. So that's like really important. And I think that well, that's why we also have to have a critical eye of like these big conglomerates that do sell all over the world to make sure that they're also making these like very smart packaging decisions. Allison, this was so informative and we need to have you back um, next year to talk about like innovation in the space. Like you could be our packaging correspondent. We would love to have you back. Oh, I would love that. Where can everybody find you, follow you and get all of your fabulous information? Sure. Yeah. So you can follow me at Allison Turquoise, A-L-L-I-S-O-N. Um, <laughs> Turquoise is a challenging one. I'll just let everyone Google it. I sometimes forget how to spell it too. Um, <laughs> I know the Q always throws people for a, a loop. Like, yeah. But anyway, so it's Allison Turquoise and I'm on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube as well. All right, that's it. Thank you everyone for listening. We will be back on Tuesday with the week's most buzzy beauty news. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify so you don't miss any breaking beauty news or product reviews. And if you want to support us, be sure to follow us at Los Angeles Pod on all platforms and join our Facebook group.
Plus, find every product we recommend on our website, glossangelespod.com, as well as links to the stories and news we report each week. You can follow us, your hosts. I'm Sarah Tan, that's S-A-R-A-T-A-N, on all social platforms. And I'm Kirby Johnson, K-I-R-B-I-E, on all social platforms. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 